0: A really busy and contentious time for Congress kicks off this week when the Biden administration releases its 2024 budget request. But that's not all. We get our weekly Hill Outlook from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And, Lauren, I want to start with a hearing that is coming up because we just heard from the acting chairman of the Merit Systems Protection Board, Kathy Harris. And I asked her, as we heard moments ago, what it would take to get her acting off her title And it turns out, reconfirmation from the Senate. And that's happening this week, that hearing?
1: Right. That's starting with the Senate Homeland Security Committee, uh, I think, voting on her nomination this week to send that to the full Senate. She was nominated... Last year, as you know, by the Biden administration, and was confirmed to be a member of the board. But her nomination to be chairman was lingered throughout the end of the year and had to be returned and renominated when the Congress met again this year. So um, it's kind of perfunctory. It's a step that you have to go through, but um, she needs that confirmation, as she told you, to actually get that chairmanship and lose that acting title. So that's one of the many nominations that the Senate is trying to process both on the executive side and on the judicial side as well with all the district and circuit court judges that they hope to fill.
0: Right. And one of the members of the Merit Systems Protection Board, his term ended a couple of weeks ago, but there's no nomination to succeed Tristan Levitt and make a three-member board again that we were aware of.
1: Right. And I believe that's been one of the problems, right? Is that the board lacked a quorum for a long time. They got it last year, um, but they still need this chairmanship filled. So I'm, I'm sure they're working behind the scenes on those nominations as they do. But to my knowledge, there isn't a pick yet for that.
0: Yeah. Be interesting what it's like to be chairman of two people, I guess. But somehow they figure out how to get through it in a day's work. And let's get back to the budget here. That's the big drop thud coming in a couple of days. And what does that cause in Congress? And We all hear that term, you know, dead on arrival, but it's a starting point of discussion, I think, is a more creative way to put it.
1: Yeah, it is. It's dead on arrival in some ways, but not in others. I would think if you look at the DOD portion of the budget, for example, that is really a starting point where the way that Congress approaches that is really a give and take from what the administration wants, possibly lifting up the amount of money that the administration sends up and asking for more. At least that's been the trend in some of the recent budget base. But on the non-defense side, the Biden administration is likely to ask for much more money than House Republicans in particular are going to want to spend, because this budget release does come amid the discussions, they're not really a debate yet, but really behind the scene discussions on what to do with the debt limit and what to attach with any sort of debt limit solution to appease House Republicans. Now, of course, the Biden administration would prefer just to lift the debt ceiling to, to give themselves the cushion they need to continue to operate the government. But at this point, we're still probably going to have a lot of back and forth over the coming months. But it does kick off a process. It is an important document. There are a lot of details in it, but it's only a starting point And Congress has a lot to say, and they'll be saying it over the next several months.
0: Well, Right. And the idea of 12 separate appropriations bills, at least in the House, maybe, and I don't know, you can tell us about the Senate. It's a revival of a great dream of regular order. And Washington is getting very cynical about this whole idea of continuing resolutions and omnibus bills and attaching all kinds of things to the omnibus bills cuz they have to pass. Any words yet, any kind of shoots of fresh thinking on regular order?
1: Well, the House certainly the Republicans did not like the omnibus bill that came out last year and I think that's one of their prime talking points even when we had that speaker debate at the beginning of the year when Kevin McCarthy was trying to to win the speakership over that week. They don't want a massive bill dropped on them at the last minute that contains all the funding for all the government agencies. They want to have regular order there. On the Senate side, we had this week or last week um, Susan Collins and Patty Murray, who are the new leaders of that committee. They released a schedule to try and get all of their bills out of committee starting in May. Um, So, you know, a plan to do that is a really good starting point. We haven't heard the timing yet from the House, although they have released earmark guidance, which are their rules for those special projects. So they're they're starting up the engine here on appropriations in both chambers to try and make progress. Now, there's going to be two different visions from House Republicans and maybe a more bipartisan approach in the Senate that could make it hard to get to resolution. But I, I think they'd like to avoid an omnibus if they could. That's always an appropriator's dream. Because, you know, it's easier to have up or down votes on individual bills rather than all the government funding at once.
0: And there is the idea that Congress actually looks individually at agency appropriation requests. And they used to talk about them with program people about their programs.
1: Right, and I think that's still happening at the staff level, and even in the subcommittee level, where different agency heads are going to be brought up, both the you know the top cabinet officials, but smaller portions and divisions of agencies will have to go up and justify what they're asking for, and there'll be a give and take there. But yeah, it's you know when when you get to the fact that the bill, which is what most members get to vote on, is one giant thing that there's really a reluctance to continue that practice among a lot of members.
0: We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, deputy news director at Bloomberg Government, and. I wanted to ask you about this bill that would bar federal employees from censoring content on private social media. What's that all about? It seems to coincide with the whole TikTok deal, which is not related, but kind of it's all social media and the poison around it.
1: Right. And I I think it's also related to some of the hearings that House Republicans have had about social media and some of what they said went on with the Hunter Biden laptop story back in the day. So it's it's part of this theme. And the idea here is that it would specifically bar federal employees from censoring speech on private platforms. Lawful speech, obviously, if it's criminal or, or something like that, or, or or that would not be covered by this. But it is one of the, the big tech bills that they're going to move. There's kind of a shift away from big tech antitrust actions to looking at this these censorship questions as they are. So this bill is very much of that theme. It was approved by the Oversight and Accountability Committee last week, coming up on the floor this week. So we'll see what that debate looks like and and how people respond. But I think this is part of the story that House Republicans really want to tell and talk about as they continue some of their oversight work and obviously even with legislation like this.
0: Interesting. Yeah. And related to issues that don't seem directly federal, this criminal code change in D.C., that's a surprise that this would get through the Democratic Senate. We know how the House feels on it. And then the president said... Yeah, that, that seemed shocking.
1: Yeah, it snowballed over time because the House, as you noted, brought up a piece of legislation which under the D.C. Home Rule Act, which created the D.C. Council and, and set up the local government that exists now, Congress reserved the right to review and in some cases overturn D.C. laws. Um, the House passed two bills, one dealing with non-citizen voting, the other dealing with this package of changes to the criminal code. And they, I think it was 31 Democrats in the House supported this, went over to the Senate. The vote was anticipated when the time came, and um, Democrats have said they're going to back it, some of them. Um, I think there will still be votes against it, just as there were in the House. Um, But it, it likely will pass and go over to President Biden, who at one point said he wouldn't veto it, then came out and said he'd sign it, which is kind of a surprise. It does pit two different things, you know, concern about crime versus the self-governance of the District of Columbia. Um, And you've seen a lot of discussion about that, Um, I think, from Eleanor Holmes Norton, the delegate here, and others who really wish Congress would stay out of D.C.'s business. But (laughs) as I said, the the law that created the government did reserve this right to Congress.
0: And earlier, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the FAIR Act with that 8.7% federal employee pay raise, a couple of things like that. And What you hear the senators saying is, yeah, great idea, this and a few others, but it's going to be in September. It still seems like there's this pushing back of these important but regular old-fashioned legislative type of ideas being pushed back to late in the first session of this Congress. That's still the case?
1: It feels like that sometimes. I mean, the last week really felt like Congress— really stepped on the gas in terms of holding a lot of hearings and taking more votes and and starting to get the the mechanisms of Congress up and running so I think we are going to see more votes on more bills whether it's the Senate Foreign Relations Committee looking at the Iraq war authorizations from you know in some cases decades ago and trying to change that or turning through more nominations so we are seeing more activity happening on more things we're gonna obviously when the budget request hits Capitol Hill that'll kick off the budget season so I do think things are starting to move more quickly um, but individual items may slip till later in the agenda as they figure out which to prioritize. And each chairman has their right to set their agenda in the order they want um, in a lot of ways.
0: And just a final detail question. There could be a Senate panel that's having a hearing on the train derailment. I mean, what can they really accomplish that trains should not derail. Nobody thinks they should.
1: Well, there are some bipartisan bills already introduced and maybe some partisan ones as well. So Congress likes to do things when they can. So th- there are some ideas that are out there. There's even proposals to help the community of East Palestine, Ohio, with maybe a paycheck protection program style program. So I think we'll we'll hear a lot of discussion about how to respond. The thing that might be interesting about this hearing is there's a chance for senators to question the CEO of Norfolk Southern, the, the railroad that operates the train that derailed. So um, I think this is just the beginning of discussions around rail, but you probably see Congress want to do something about it, put its mark on the question as the year goes on.
0: Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. We'll post this interview at slash federal drive. Hear the federal drive on your docket. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me.
3: Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you.
2: It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University
3: of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan, and on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms.
2: Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware
3: of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in
2: influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State. It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that?
3: So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were ten times smarter than I was, but my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show